Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. Well, as we go through this current challenge, we can drink and eat together and talking about hospitality. As Sue said, this week we're going to take a look at this issue of hunger and to consider those whose tables are empty and to think about what we can be doing to ensure our tables are places where God's justice comes. Throughout the Bible, we see numerous commands, practical provisions, prophetic outcries, and gentle encouragements, all related to this issue of ensuring the hungry and poor are fed, that no one gets left out, and everyone on God's earth has enough food in their stomach to flourish. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, talking about the character of God, says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He's speaking to the Israelites there. Leviticus, this is a command. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. It also speaks elsewhere in the biblical code around um, if you are plucking from your vineyard, don't take everything off the branch, leave some for the poor. So actual commandments to leave behind a portion for those who are without. In the New Testament, in James chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33, as there is a description about the way that the early church practiced community, it says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. The early church didn't just tithe a little bit through direct debit. Obviously, they weren't doing that. They actually gathered and redistributed and shared amongst themselves to make sure that no one in their community was without. That enabled the apostles to minister powerfully and for God's love to be testified to in the way that that community was interacting with themselves, making sure that there was no one without or hungry. I don't know if you've ever wondered why a book that is meant to be a spiritual text about souls and salvation has so much to say about practical things like hunger, like helping the poor. I think a lot of times we can think of and conceptualize of the Christian faith as something that's kind of up there in the heavens and in the skies or deep within our souls. But actually, when we look at the Bible, God wants to see the world and all who are in it spiritually reconciled back to him through the forgiveness of sins, through that restoration of that relationship with him. But the Bible also makes it very clear that God is deeply concerned with the very present physical and material challenges faced by all his children in the world that he has created. Right here, right now, the physical as well as the spiritual matters to God. He wants saved souls, healed hearts, reconciled communities, as well as a flourishing natural environment and joyful dining tables producing full tummies and healthy bodies. It's all part of his commands, his vision for us and how we are to live. It's part of his saving purposes for the world. 
But sadly, this is not the world we live in. It does not live up to the expectations of God and his vision for our flourishing. In 2019, when data was last collected on this, an estimated 690 million people globally were estimated to be living in hunger. That's facing some level of food insecurity. Out of that 690 million, 135 million were living with what is defined as acute hunger or what we might describe as famine in situations of famine. And now due to the lockdowns of the coronavirus pandemic, necessary lockdowns, however, it is estimated that this number of acutely hungry people will in fact double and increase by 130 million again this year to reach 265 million. This figure, these figures are staggeringly huge and they can be quite overwhelming, but they demand attention and they demand that we wrestle with them to understand the driving factors. Because what is actually of of real interest, especially in the humanitarian sector that I work in as my day job throughout the week, is that over the past decade until 2019, hunger was in decline. But in 2019, it was the first time that the progress being made on hunger actually started to not only slow down, but reverse. And that was before the coronavirus lockdown. And that was due not just to drought and and difficult environmental circumstances, but primarily due to an increase of conflict in our world. In Yemen, where there has been a long-running six-year civil war that um, very few people actually may even know about, 20 million people alone need food aid. That's roughly the size of the population of Australia. Out of that 20 million, 2 million children require treatment for acute malnutrition, of which around 360,000 are presently at risk of dying without such treatment. But while global hunger rises, the rate of global food waste is soaring. And this is a deeply concerning contradiction that speaks to the injustice of what is taking place. So globally, one third of the world's food is wasted and and, uh, that equates to about $900 billion worth of food down the drain each year. In Australia alone, we waste around 7.3 million tonnes of food, which is about 300 kilograms per person or one in five bags of groceries. And that costs our nation $20 billion of, of lost value as well. But this isn't just an abstract issue about people we've never met in countries we've never met. It's local, but we are also connected to it as well globally here at the Granary Church. And I'm going to play a clip for you now. This is a video from Menembwe in the Congo where the granary is working to provide emergency food relief, not through a big organization like the United Nations, but with Pastor Jerome and my wife, Brittany, quite literally organizing small planes to drop food into this community. They are in the southeastern part of Congo and they are uh, from the Banyamalenge tribal group. And due to the ethnic uh, persecution that this ethnic group faces, They have been cut off from being able to farm their lands and their cows, their livelihoods have been taken from them. And so they are gathered, basically sheltering as internally displaced people largely in this township of Minembwe, unable to get food and they are in real need. And that song was sent to us via WhatsApp from this community. 
And the words of this song state, you have remembered us, O Lord, your compassion, your generosity, you have remembered us. That is their response to receiving this food. I said Pastor Jerome and Brittany are involved in organizing it. Well, it's largely people in this room who have paid for that food to go over there too. And one of the ladies sent us this message. She said, we came here to receive food sent by our children from Australia. She refers to us as children, as family. That's how deeply they feel about our church. Even if you're just finding out that we're doing this today, there is a deep connection evolving there now. They have been thinking of us without knowing us. Since the war happened, we have been experiencing a lot of tragedies, including the death of men and women, especially when they go to bring their harvest from the field. We can't go to cultivate our fields because of insecurity and fear of being taken. So to get food here in Menembwe saves lives. Many people were killed. Our cows were looted. We can't access our harvest. Our children keep crying of hunger, but now we can feed them. And when you hear testimonies like this and you see the dancing and you hear their worship, that is when you realize the deep and profound interconnection between the physical needs of people and addressing physical needs and how that relates to them experiencing a spiritual blessing as well and spiritual uplifting too. It it becomes an act of worship to partner in distributing food and helping to feed these communities and you see it explode literally in song. The simple truth is this, is that whilst there is more than enough food produced in the world, our food systems, our food delivery programs, the political will, individual will to make sure that no one is without food is not there. It's broken. And as we've seen, it's, it's an issue that has the potential to get worse, especially when you consider the lockdowns, when you consider rising conflict and displacement, and when you consider the impact of climate change on the environment and how it's degrading our environment. So what role do we as Christians have to play in addressing global and local hunger? Throughout the scriptures, God speaks of our purpose to rebuild, restore, and renew all that is broken. And we can be doing that with the food systems. Isaiah 58 gives us the clearest mandate, in my opinion, one of the clearest mandates in the Bible when it comes to the work of justice that we are to be doing uh, to those who are enslaved and those who are hungry. And the context is critical because this actually comes as a prophetic declaration by Isaiah, a prophet sent by God to the Israelites to basically tell them they've taken their eye off the ball. Religion and the practice of faith for them had become about superficial acts of religiosity, going to the temple, lighting the candles, killing things on the altar, fasting, making it look like they were religious. And Isaiah, speaking as a mouthpiece of God, calls them out. It says this, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to pretend to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen instead, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry out for help, and he will say, here I am. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Clearly, we are called to partner with God in removing the barriers that impede the flourishing God intends for all his people. And, you know, in Western countries, we sometimes refer to ourselves as Christian nations. What would a prophet Isaiah have to say to those of us who call ourselves or those nations who refer to themselves as Christian nations when it comes to the global state of hunger and injustice in our world? So this is not something that we are meant to undertake or look at uh, through guilt or through shame, through conviction, yes, through deep challenge, absolutely, but not guilt or shame. It's actually an opportunity for worship. And I don't know if you've ever thought about feeding the hungry, doing justice as an act of worship to God, but it is. It expresses love for God, thankfulness for God, our attitude towards God, our understanding of his heart can be expressed in raising our hands and singing and in outstretching them with food or with support to help those who are hungry. It's an act of worship. Jesus himself, when he came to earth, not surprisingly, picked up and demonstrated the holistic context and meaning of the gospel by bringing sweet relief for those who are both spiritually hungry for God's love and literally hungry for their daily bread. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, the greatest commandment we have as followers is that we are to love God and from that love and from that relationship to love others. The Lord's prayer literally begins with a communal request, give us today our daily bread. It's not give us today my daily bread. It's a prayer for the provision for the community. And in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, where Jesus describes what judgment will be like as a parable separating the sheep from the goats, Jesus describes again spiritually and literally that what we do for the least of these, which includes feeding those who are hungry, we do or do not do for Jesus himself. Incredible words. I want to tell you another story, this time from Nepal, to drive from Nepal, to drive home this interconnection between how addressing someone who is physically hungry, can open the way for a gospel that touches their spiritual lives to come through as well. This lady, uh, her name is Shanti, and Brittany and I worked and lived in Nepal for about two and a half years. And Shanti lives up in the remote uh, northwestern mountains in a town called Jumla. It's over 4,000 meters above sea level. You have to fly and then hike to get there, basically. And I met Shanti at a uh, nutrition program, at a feeding program that World Vision was running in that community. And what they were doing is that they were um, actually going back to indigenous forms of cultivation and looking at what grains had the most nutritional value in the local community and how to mix and remake them to provide highly nutritious meals that were locally sourced for the children. And the reason this was so important and such critical work became very clear when I sat and spoke to Shanti because Shanti lost her first three or four children under the age of five. Now she said the spirits took them, but I've been in enough of these contexts to know that when someone in a impoverished situation says the spirits took them, normally it was from something that was preventable, preventable disease, preventable malnourishment and starvation. That was obviously a clear factor here in, in the deaths of Shanti's own children. When we went to Nepal, we were handed a book on fatalism and development. And in it, Nepali anthropologist Dor Bahadur Bista described how the two interacting principles in Nepal of fatalism and the Hindu caste system 
made the practice of development and difficult uh, of development very difficult in Nepal. He described how the most important feature to fatalism is the belief that one has no personal control over one's life circumstances, which are determined through a divine or powerful external agency. That was a play in Shanti's story. She just thought the God or gods in her case just randomly decided to take her children. So it was hard to bring hope into her life and, in fact, into that community. They had actually gotten used to their children passing away. It doesn't mean that it hurts any less and we should never degrade the experience of, of, of people and women in those communities by saying it hurts less because they get used to it. They don't, they don't get used to it in the emotional sense. They get used to it in the physical sense. Children pass away and they start to lose hope. They start to believe, well, the gods have just got it in for them, that this is just my lot in life. But when an organization can come and minister to the physical needs and to show them, no, your children can have a future, they can literally survive past the age of five. And that organization is there out of a Christian witness and a Christian love, which World Vision was and the local staff, amazing Christians. All of a sudden you start to see not only health start to return to her family, but an opening to a spiritual horizon and a different future for her life as they have conversations about why is a Christian organization all the way up in Nepal doing that work. An incredible story connecting the physical to the spiritual, how it all goes together in the mission that God has given us as we've seen in many of those Bible verses. So just to make this practical as we finish our time this morning, I want to think about how we can respond to the challenges of global hunger, but also how we can enact justice around our own literal tables in our homes and in our communities. It's obvious how you can help address global hunger in some ways. You know, you can help fund the next food drop to Menembwe. It costs us about $3,000 every time we do one of these and they continue to be a necessity for I don't know how long. It could be quite some time, but every time we have another $3,000, we work with Jerome to organize another food drop. So you can help very practically at that low level. But we can also think about enacting justice through who is at our table. And just to give you a thought about that, I just want to share another story actually from Nepal. And this young gentleman called Ashish uh, on my right-hand side there in the red shirt. And Ashish was a legend. He was a warm, bubbly, um, passionate young man who was full of hugs <laughs> and he'd come up and hug you on the street and he'd want to play but Ashish um, has has Down syndrome and uh, in his community uh, was quite frankly looked down upon for that and uh, we used to live downstairs with our landlords above us our Nepali landlords and they felt very uneasy about having Ashish constantly coming around to their house because we lived underneath them because when he'd come over, he'd bang on the door, he'd kind of call out for us, you know, he, he'd make himself known that he was there. And many times actually we'd come home and open the door and Ashish would already be in the house. So he was around there a lot. And they felt uneasy because of some of those issues around the car system and, and, and the segregation that was happening there. But over time, over the couple of years that we were there, as they just saw that, no, like Ashish is as welcome in our house as anyone else. Like, why wouldn't he be kind of thing? That really spoke and ministered to them and they started to show a, an increasing openness and warmth to him as well. So there was a witness to God's love purely due to who was at our table. That can happen here. That should be happening here in our communities. Think about who's at your table. Next, think about what's on your table. We have so many more ways now than what we had even 10 years ago, even in the consumer market, to be thinking more ethically and to be buying more ethically, sourcing more ethically. I still remember when fair trade was just a fledgling thing and we used to have to go and campaign for supermarkets to stock fair trade chocolate. Now pretty much every chocolate that you like, you can find in some kind of fair trade version and 
coffee as well, obviously too. But, you know, there's a, a resurging movement to shop locally, to go to the farmer's market. We have a small veggie garden in our house and don't worry, we still buy at Aldi and everything like that. We haven't gone full eco, so I'm not claiming that at all. But it's just been great to see the kids engage more with what's on their plate and to be thinking about the environment through that way. So we can think about justice through what's on our table and we can advocate as well. In my day job, uh, I help organize Christians to go and speak to government about how we can help feed the hungry around the world through our aid budget. And in the last federal aid budget, even as our country is under immense uh, fiscal pressure of, of its own, um, we actually saw an increase in the amount of money given to humanitarian relief. And that part of the budget was $450 million last year. This year it went up to $475 million. So we can continue to advocate in that way as well. So I'm actually going to invite Sam Paul up now. And Sam, um, his family is in that church in Vishakapatnam. That's where he grew up. But we've had the privilege of having Sam as our own for the last five years in Australia. We lived together actually for a while when they were newly married and, and we were too. And Sam's going to come up and share what's happening in India and he's going to lead us through a time of prayer in our tables around what we can be doing to address this. Can we thank Matt for his wonderful sharing this morning? <clears throat> I want you to hold on to the, the practical ways that Matt has led us to to think and react upon what do we do when we hear messages like this and there's some practical tools to uh, open our homes and do what we can do. This morning, I would love to share a story, uh, I mean, a um, story that has happened in India during this pandemic. And on 22nd of March, my country, my home country, um, India, I say, India is my motherland, Australia is my mother-in-law land. <laughs> so my motherland in India on 22nd of March, um, we, uh, the, the government has come on the media at 8 o'clock in the night and they said in four hours uh, we're going to go to a strict lockdown. So there wasn't enough preparation for people to prepare and it was a strict lockdown where you couldn't go anywhere. And so that means for most of the people who are migrant workers who come from these small towns, villages into uh, the big uh, metropolitan cities, uh, they, uh, for them, all of a sudden, they lost their jobs. Not only losing jobs, but uh, for some of them, they are stuck in, in a city where they can't work and, and they can't feed their family, their children. So it's literally an empty table for them. Through the pictures that you're going to see in a minute, so this is the lockdown when happened. These are all the migrant workers. And this is in one city. And this happened throughout India in major cities. And um, thousands of people got stuck. There's no public transport. There's, uh, you know, the India came to stop still. And uh, the, uh, the next picture you're going to see is the picture of this man called Ram Pandit. He's a migrant worker too. And he was in Delhi, the capital of India. And he, um, this call was him receiving a phone call from his wife saying that his son is seriously ill, very sick. And uh, so Ram Prasad's village is 1,000 kilometers away from Delhi in a small village. And um, Ram decided that he would walk 1,000 kilometers to go see his family. And halfway through his walk, he received this call. By the time he went to his home, his son passed away. And it is a very 
heartbreaking story. So he not only walked to an empty table with no food, he also walked to an empty table with no sun. My heart this morning is not to take you to a direction where, what do I do with this story? I just want to enlighten you that lockdown for non-Australians is far more different to what we have experienced. And this morning, I want to pray with you all. I want to read this scripture. Pastor Sue has read this morning from Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release, uh, and release from darkness for the prisoners. And I want to highlight again, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim. And God has anointed us. And together as a church, you know, I've seen the first hand of what Granary Church does because the Love on the Move project that uh, Matt's been talking about, the, the sewing project that we as a church were in, involved, it comes through our home church, my home church back in Fizek. And, uh, um, you know, during lockdown, even we, we could give some groceries to them. And as a church, it is always important for us to take that moment when we are with our family, with our kids around the table to think and pray for the people who are going through, um, going through this tough time. Now can I encourage you to turn to the t people next to you on the table, to take a minute and to reflect on what Matt has shared us with this morning about how can we be practically doing things? How can we open up our home, pull a chair around our table to invite people? You know, there are many other practical ways that we can be involved. So now is the time, can you turn around to the, to the, to the table and share if you're new for the first time and you're here, you don't know how to pray, uh, can I ask one of the, uh, can I encourage you? Praying is just talking to God in your own language. So um, you can just sit there, listen to what people are praying. Um, but yes, this, please, please take this time and reflect on, on what we heard this morning. Thank you. 